This is Earth Files, the award-winning news site with the latest updates in science, environment, and real X-Files. Podcasting in-depth reports beyond the 6 o'clock news by Emmy Award-winning journalist Linda Moulton Howe. Hi, everyone here and around the world. Thanks so much to all of you for letting me know how much you have valued my recent reports in May about the MJ-12 Psalm 101 Top Secret Magic Eyes Only 1954 training manual about extraterrestrial entities and technology recovery and disposal. Please note that in 1954, our government was using the word extraterrestrial in its training manuals. And then last week's Project Aquarius, both of those documents show the U.S. government knew in the 1940s that it was dealing with extraterrestrial biological entities that have very advanced craft, technologies, AI, clones, androids, and robots made by the extraterrestrial biologicals. Tonight, I'm going to show you parts of another leaked document that contains two haunting secrets that no doubt provoked an intense cover-up in 1947 about the UFO crashes that contain beings dead and alive. But first, I would like to show you something beautiful, what astronomers are calling, quote, the most spectacular light echo in the history of astronomy, close quote. The star in the middle is V838, Minoser Otis, or more simply, V838 Mun. It has been puzzling astronomers since 2002, when the NASA ESA Hubble telescope began recording strange outbursts of light. The star would suddenly become 600,000 times more luminous than our Earth's sun. That light illuminated the interstellar dust surrounding the mysterious star. These light echoes have been recorded by Hubble many times between 2002 and 2006. The beautiful whorls and eddies in the time-lapse recording are possibly made by the effects of magnetic fields in the space between the stars. But V838 Mun still is a cosmic mystery. When it comes to investigating UFOs and ETs, one man I know and respect purchased several hundred top-secret pages from a whistleblower in the mid-1990s. He is Robert Wood, Ph.D. He retired in 1993 after a 43-year-long career in aerospace, first working for Douglas Aircraft that later merged with the McDonnell Corporation in 1967. And that's when McDonnell Douglas was created and later would be purchased by Boeing in the early 1990s. Over those four decades, Bob Wood worked on aerodynamic heating, ballistic missile defense, radar, the International Space Station, and the mysterious physics of UFOs. After his 1993 retirement, Dr. Wood was approached by nuclear physicist and UFO researcher Stanton Friedman first to study the MJ-12 Psalm 101 document that I showed you a couple of weeks ago on May 11th. 
That training manual was produced by Dr. Wood from 35 millimeter negative photographs that came through a whistleblower. By 1996, Dr. Wood had paid for and received a lot more classified pages about UFOs and extraterrestrials from whistleblowers. And eventually by 1998, Dr. Wood and his son Ryan edited together their cache of leaked documents into this 190 pages of majestic documents. This soft cover book contains 15 leaked documents. Bob and Ryan Wood described this work as, quote, a story of extraterrestrial hardware, discovery and concealment over the years by United States military and government official documents that include misspellings and other errors, close quote. In fact, government documents from the 1940s have lots of misspellings. Like last week, people couldn't believe there were so many misspellings in the original Project Aquarius, but there are. Tonight, I'm going to concentrate on the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit summary that has this cover page in which a three by five inch center swath of words have been blacked out. Below that black is a large rubber stamp pressed on an angle that reads in outline M-A-J-I-C. That's magic with a J, not a G. Magic was a new and serious level of secrecy created by President Harry S. Truman in September of 1947, two and a half months after the several July 1947 UFO crashes in the Roswell, White Sands, Corona, and Socorro regions that are referred to in the IPU summary as LZ-1, Landing Zone 1 near Corona, LZ-2, Landing Zone 2 below Oscura Peak on the White Sands Proving Ground near the Trinity site of the first atomic bomb test. LZ-3, Landing Zone 3 on the Mescalero Indian Reservation east of Alamogordo and Holloman Air Force Base. That LZ-3 crashed UFO, I've been told, was very damaged, but the craft at Landing Zone 2 on White Sands below Oscura Peak was intact. Those overseeing magic secrecy were called MJ-12, a group of 12 advisors from military, science, medicine, and business to advise President Truman about the UFOs and ETs being secretly retrieved from various crash sites. From FDR to Truman and then General Eisenhower, those three presidents ordered the highest secrecy on all UFO-related matters. Here is Bob and Ryan Woods' cleaned-up page, dated July 22, 1947, War Department Office of A.C. of S. G2, Top Secret Magic. A.C. of S. means Army Chief of Staff, and G2 means Head of the Intelligence Section for the Army Chief of Staff. Quote, This document 
has been reclassified as intelligence material affecting the national security and has been upgraded as above top secret with a need to know basis. Only those authorized persons with magic access may have access. Downgrading scheduled to commence only with an approved presidential executive order with approval of U.S. Majestic Intelligence and Security. By authority of Lieutenant General John A. Sanford, Director of the NSA National Security Agency, approved by Alan Dulles, Director of the CIA, and the date approved was on September 4, 1960, when President Eisenhower was in the White House. Note that January 20th, 1953 was the date General Dwight Eisenhower's presidency officially began until January 20th, 1961, when Massachusetts Congressman John F. Kennedy was sworn in as the new president. What this means is that 13 years after the July 22nd 1947 War Department top secret document was first prepared, it was then reclassified to the highest possible top secret ultra magic on September 4, 1960 by the authority of CIA Director Alan Dulles. And who prepared this top secret ultra magic summary? Quote, Paragraph 1, the extraordinary recovery of fallen airborne objects in the state of New Mexico between 4 July to 6 July 1947. This summary was prepared by Headquarters Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, Scientific and Technical Branch, Counterintelligence Directorate, as requested by AC of SG2 at the expressed order of Chief of Staff. Paragraph 2 of this document states, quote, At 23.32 Mountain Standard Time, which would be 11.32 p.m. Mountain Time, on the 3rd of July, 1947, radar stations in East Texas and White Sands Proving Ground, New Mexico, tracked two unidentified aircraft until both dropped off radar. Two crash sites have been located close to the White Sands Proving Ground. Site LZ-1, Landing Zone 1, was located at a ranch near Corona, approximately 75 miles northwest of the town of Socorro, at latitude 33-40-31, longitude 106-28-29, with Oscura Peak being the geographic reference point. Paragraph 3. The air staff target personnel were mainly interested in LZ-2, as this site on White Sands contained the majority of structural detail of the craft's airframe, propulsion, and navigation technology, meaning it wasn't so damaged that that could not be examined. The recovery of five bodies in a damaged escape cylinder precluded an investigation LZ-1, which there was a lot of damage in the LZ-1. Paragraph 4. On arrival at LZ-2, personnel assessed the finds as, 
not belonging to any aircraft, not to any rocket or weapons or balloon tests that are normally conducted from surrounding bases. First reports indicated that the first crash investigators from Roswell Army Airfield that said that landing zone one at the Mescalero Indian Reservation was the remains of an Army Air Force top secret mogul balloon project. But when scientists from the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory arrived to inspect landing zone two on the Trinity site, it became apparent to all concerned that what had crashed in the desert was something out of this world. Paragraph five, and I, I want to make a correction, uh, landing zone one was near Corona. Uh, that is where they, uh, on arrival at landing zone one, that the recovery of five bodies were in a damaged escape cylinder. Mescalero was where it was damaged and there were also other bodies and the two sometimes get confused. So now in paragraph four, on arrival at landing LZ-2, personnel had assessed that the finds as not belonging to any aircraft, rocket, weapons, or balloon tests that are normally conducted <clears throat> from surrounding bases. First reports indicated that the first crash investigators from Roswell Army Airfield said that landing zone one, that's the one near Corona, nearest Corona, was the remains of an Army Air Force top secret mogul balloon project. But when scientists from the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory arrived to inspect landing zone two, which is on the Trinity site, it became apparent to all concerned that what had crashed in the desert was something out of this world. Going to paragraph five, interviews with radar operators and officers from the Signal Corps Engineering Laboratories, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, were tracking these objects on and off since June 29, 1947 from Station A, not identified in this particular document. All indicated that these targets have periodically, meaning the targets of the UFOs in the sky, remain stationary for minutes at a time. And then the UFOs would resume their original course, flying from the southwest to the northeast. Kenneth Arnold uh, is, was one of the people from that time. And remember, on June 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold was flying over Mineral, Washington in his plane at approximately 9,200 feet altitude near Mount Rainier when he was startled by, quote, a tremendously bright flash that lit up the surfaces of my aircraft. And then the flash happened again. And I observed a formation of very bright objects coming from the vicinity of Mount Baker, traveling at tremendous speed I counted nine of them and could not find any tails on them. And as I put it to newsmen in Pendleton, Oregon, after I landed, they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. And that's when the name Flying Saucer was born. And here is the 1952 book. Ken Arnold wrote, 
about his experience entitled The Coming of the Saucers, co-written with Ray Palmer. On the inside cover of the book, here from 1952, is Ken Arnold's autograph to my dad, Chet Moulton, who was Idaho's director of aeronautics. Part of dad's work was search and rescue for downed pilots, and Ken Arnold, an Idaho pilot, helped my father in search and rescue. Here is what Ken Arnold autographed to my dad. Quote, to the state of Idaho Department of Aeronautics and Chet Moulton, its able director, who has known all along we are not alone in the sky. Yours, Ken Arnold, in the year 1952, close quote, when the book came out. Let's go back to the Interplanetary Phenomena Unit Report, paragraph six, a special radiobiological team accompanied by SED, Signals External Data, and security detail from Sandia Base under orders from Colonel S.V. Hasbrook, USA Armed Forces Special Weapons Project, secured the immediate area surrounding the crash site. Select scientists from the General Advisory Committee of the Atomic Energy Commission, most notably Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer, who developed the first atomic bomb that was tested at the Trinity site, White Sands Proving Ground on July 16, 1945. Dr. Oppenheimer was identified at Landing Zone 2 on the Trinity site, as well as other members. Among other paperclip specialists identified at Landing Zone 2 near the Trinity site. This is the UFO that came down at the, near the Trinity site. Uh, that's in the Interplanetary Phenomena Unit study. Specialists identified at Landing Zone 2 were Dr. Werner von Braun from Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, Dr. Ernst Steinhoff from the Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and Dr. Hubertus Strughold, Aeromedical Lab, Randolph Field in San Antonio, Texas. Paragraph 7. Because of the stringent security measures that were in place at both crash sites, the team was not able to gain access to the several locations where wreckage and bodies are being held. Note the present tense of this document about bodies being held, are being held. The CIC counterintelligence member of the team was able to learn that several bodies were taken to the hospital at Roswell Army Airfield and others to either Los Alamos, New Mexico, Wright Field in Patterson, Ohio, and Randolph Field, Texas, for security reasons. It is believed that this dispersion was on the orders of General Thomas Handy, 4th Army Headquarters. Remains of the power plant were taken to Alamogordo Holloman Army Airfield in southern New Mexico and to Kirtland Army Airfield in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where also is the location of Sandia Labs. Other remains were transported across the White Sands Proving Grounds to the storage facility of the Navy Research Lab there. 
Structural debris and assorted parts were taken to Air Material Command, Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. All this was accomplished by 1730 Mountain Standard Time, which was 5.30 p.m. Mountain on July 7, 1947. To maintain secrecy of Landing Zone 2, the commanding officer of Roswell Army Airfield was authorized to give a brief press release to local paper in which 8th Air Force Headquarters promptly denied rumors that the Army had flying saucers in their possession, which effectively killed press interest. Civilians who might have been seen or might have seen or handled some of the wreckage or viewed bodies were detained under the McNabb law until all remaining evidence was secured in restricted bases. Witnesses were debriefed by CIC Army Intelligence and warned of the consequences of talking to the press. So far, secrecy seems to be working. And that means that the military and the government moved in, threatened any and all eyewitnesses who had been identified at landing zone one, two, or three, and that they would then either were held or sometimes in detention or even arrested uh, until the crash disk, the uh, beings, everything that was there could be picked up and put into a, another uh, clear uh, a place that would be safe. And this is where this issue of the McNabb law that Americans were being handled in such a way, even if the reason was because they saw a crashed UFO or live or dead alien bodies. But those, the detainment, even sometimes an arrest, to keep them from going into uh, the areas where they had been, this was done without what was considered to be due process of law. Now, paragraph nine, all civilian and military personnel involved with the recovery operations had need to know access with proper security clearances. Though several MPs, military police, suffered nervous breakdowns resulting in one committing suicide. Military police details from Alamogordo and Kirtland performed security functions very well. Ground personnel from Sandia experienced some form of contamination resulting in the deaths of three technicians. The status of the fourth technician is unknown. Autopsies are scheduled to determine cause of death. Army Counterintelligence CIC has made appropriate security file entries into dossiers with cross-references for future reviews. Now back in 1983, while I was trying to produce the HBO documentary, UFOs, The ET Factor, I was told by a military source that four security technicians who got close to one of the craft and bodies in early July 1947 began to bleed from their ears, eyes, nose, mouth, like Ebola disease, hemorrhaging, and that all four 
died. If this is true, it's one of two reasons that I alluded to at the beginning of this program about why President Truman and his science, medical, and military advisors in July 1947 decided to lie about the momentous revelation that non-humans were interacting with Earth because the president and MJ-12 suddenly were uncertain about how dangerous those interactions might be for humans. Paragraph 10. With the pending approval of James Forrestal as new Secretary of Defense, it is certain that he will be briefed on certain aspects of the discoveries. The only cabinet member to date that may know of the details is Secretary of State George Marshall, but it has become known to Army Intelligence CIC that some of the recovery operation was shared with Representative John F. Kennedy, Massachusetts Democrat elected to Congress in 1946, son of Joseph P. Kennedy, Commission on Organization of the Executive Branch of the Government. Kennedy had limited duty as a naval officer assigned to naval intelligence during World War II. It is believed that information was obtained from source in Congress, meaning JFK, who is close to Secretary for Air Force. A side note, JFK was close to Stuart Symington, and Symington was sworn in as the first secretary of the U.S. Air Force on September 18, 1947, only two and one-half months after the New Mexico UFO July crashes LZ-1, 2, and 3. Paragraph 11, page 6. As to the bodies recovered at Landing Zone 2, it appeared that none of the five crew members survived entry into our atmosphere due to unknown causes. Dr. Detlef Bronk has been asked to assist in the autopsy of one well-preserved cadaver to be done by Major Charles K. Ray. From what descriptions the team was able to learn and from photographs taken by intelligence photographers, the occupants at Landing Zone 2 appear in most respects human, with some anatomical differences in the head, eyes, hands, and feet. They have a slight build about five feet tall with grayish-pink skin color. They have no hair on their bodies and are clothed with a tight-fitting flight suit that appears to be fireproof. Some of the bodies looked as if they had been burned on head and the hands. Their overall stature reminds one of young children. It is believed that there were male and female genders present, but was hard to distinguish. Paragraph 12. The most disturbing aspect of this investigation was there were other bodies found not far from Landing Zone 1 that looked as if they had been dissected as you would a frog. It is not known if Army field surgeons had performed exploratory surgery on these bodies. Animal parts were reportedly discovered inside the craft at Landing Zone 2, but this cannot be confirmed. 
The team has reserved judgment on this issue. I'm giving you now my own side note. Animal parts in UFOs is consistent with law enforcement investigations since the early 1960s, even the late 1950s, of bloodless, trackless animal mutilations, where sheriffs and deputies concluded the perpetrators are creatures from outer space because of eyewitnesses of craft and beams over animals in pastures found mutilated. Paragraph 13. Our assessment of this investigation rests on two assumptions. One, either this discovery was an elaborate and well-orchestrated hoax, maybe by the Russians, or two, our country has played host to beings from another planet. Paragraph 14. Until more data can be acquired from other intelligent sources, it is the opinion of the IPU team that the investigation be expanded to include sources that might elucidate other possibilities not found by contemporary science. It is also recommended that appropriate budgets be allocated to facilitate future assignments that the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit may be called upon to perform. Until further orders, this investigation will continue. And Bob and Ryan Wood noted 20 spelling errors in this IPU documentary. So in this Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit Summary of July 22, 1947, there are two haunting descriptions that never made it to official public news then or now. One, the profuse bleeding from orifices by the four-man security team and their deaths. And second, other bodies found not far from landing zone one that looked as if they had been dissected as you would a frog. Back in 1983, while trying to produce the HBO documentary that the government ultimately blocked, I traveled to a ranch in Corona, New Mexico to talk with a rancher who had experienced bloodless, trackless animal mutilations there and was referenced to me as someone who knew and had talked with Mac Brazel, the original rancher near Corona who found strange wreckage on his land that 4th of July, 1947 holiday. Mac Brazel drove to Roswell to tell Sheriff Wilcox about what he had found. I was standing with that Corona rancher at a pasture fence back around 1983 when he said to me, I talked to Mac. There's a horrible secret. And that rancher didn't say what the horrible secret was. Did Mac Brazel know about the body parts dissected as you would a frog that the IPU summary describes at Landing Zone 2 near the Trinity site at White Sands? Another piece I can add is from a scientist who told me he had firsthand knowledge about how body parts were discovered in the July 1947 UFO craft. He said investigators were pushing on the smooth, 
just not, nothing but smooth surfaces on the interior of a wedge-shaped craft, when suddenly drawer-like compartments slid out of the wall. And that's where the body parts were. But what exactly were the body parts? Were they animals, aliens, or humans? Last year, I received a note from an aerospace engineer who wrote that he had learned the bloodless, trackless animal mutilations that I began investigating in September of 1979 were done by some of the gray type ETs because they need a certain chemical from Earth for their sustenance and health. If that were true, why couldn't the whole world of humans just be told? An introduction to other life in this universe could begin as needing to do, to do trade with us for their survival. This is a complicated, complicated, complicated situation. And I want now to give you an update from Alan Steinfeld about his June program series, Making Contact. Alan says, the complexity of secrets and lies about the presence of alien intelligences on Earth in our solar system and beyond to other solar systems, even other galaxies, has evolved into physics advancements and new technologies while we humans wait for the public announcement that we are not alone in this universe, that it is teeming with conscious life. And that's why Alan Steinfeld and Deborah Giusti have produced a new five-part series called Making Contact, The New Realities of Disclosure and Cosmic Awakening based on Alan's recent book. Go to the website www.makingcontactseries.com. These new programs delve into uncovering the mystery of the UFO phenomena from the government cover-up to the deeper questions about the nature of the human relationship to the others in this cosmos. The first episode was free and premiered on May 19th, featuring Nick Pope and Drs. J.J. and Desiree Hurtak. It can be seen on the www.makingcontactseries.com website. Episode two will be broadcast tomorrow, June 2nd. This will be a deep dive into disclosure with lawyer Danny Sheehan, UFO lobbyist Steve Bassett, and special guest former Air Force Captain Robert Salas. Captain Salas witnessed a giant UFO shut down the nuclear missile warheads at Malmstrom Air Force Base in April 1967. Those testifying at the recent UFO congressional hearing said they were ignorant of any such incident. We will hear Captain Salas' reaction to that denial. Episode 3, June 9th, will center around the science and cosmology of UAP UFOs with Caroline Corey, Travis Taylor from Secrets of the Skinwalker Ranch, and David Mason, science engineer of sophisticated vector impedance cathodes. Episode 4, June 16th, will be me with Alan Steinfeld and with an in-depth conversation with experiencer Whitley Strieber and artist Kimora Jones. Some questions to explore. What is it about human beings that make us so interesting to the other intelligences interacting with Earth? 
And what does the nature of the human soul have to do with these other beings and the whole UFO UAP phenomenon? The series concludes with episode 5, June 23rd, in a discussion about starseeds and hybrids and the possible information of a new human race with Mary Rodwell from Australia, Adam Apollo, and Marina Seren. To register for the whole series or parts of the series, go to www.makingcontactseries.com. And now, Ian, what have we got in comments and questions? Okay, Linda, we've got a lot of comments. There's a lot to unpack there. Thank you. Wonderful presentation. Several of us have agreed that we've got to watch it all over again to uh, let it sink in. Well, and this is only three of the documents of basically so many of varying degrees of seriousness. But think of how much has been in these three earthbiles.com YouTube channel uh, programs in a row, and it's just three. Think of the Suitland, Maryland archive that is underground. It's supposed to be hundreds of acres or something that the CIA and SADIA, geospatial, and they all have underground, huge, gigantic archives of documents that the world has never seen. I just feel this is so important for people to now realize in the context of our congressional hearing that there are serious, really credible, serious documents that are telling the truth everybody should have this information. So go ahead, Ian. Linda, can you give us a bit more information on where uh, the Earthfiles audience can obtain a copy of Bob Wood's book of majestic documents? Can that be referenced, please? See, I have a copy that goes all the way back to when it first came out, but that was that's what happened. They did a, uh, all the way uh, into, it was 1998, I think, and uh, I bought this from them uh, at a conference, and everything sold out, and uh, I don't know, I'm not aware if they are selling it today, but I figured that one of the things that maybe uh, if people feel that there's as much value in all of this as I do, that um, I could find out from uh, Bob and Ryan what the status is, uh, if they ha have any plans or whatever, and report it, say, next week or so. I'll, I'll get in touch with them. I never, I, in other words, I didn't have the time to, to go into that for this report, but I will find out. I just thought it was important to share from and give no, I, the context. I, absolutely, and we can reference that in the, uh, yeah. in the narrative below the show. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Linda, uh, can you tell us, uh, are you appearing at any conferences uh, later on this year? I'm yes. About uh, your conference appearances. Yes. I am going to be in Barcelona, Spain. Uh, I understand Chris Mellon will be there also. And I will be speaking uh, in the UFO Congress in Barcelona. And we're going to have at earthfiles.com, and they will have in Europe, uh, the uh, notices and how to get tickets uh, we're to do that in the next week or two by uh, email agreement. And uh, that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, Barcelona is a beautiful, beautiful city. And if any of you would like uh, to, uh, if you 
didn't go on vacations in uh, 2020 and 2021, and maybe even this year because of COVID, that maybe uh, by September, it would be great uh, for some of you to be able to go to the UFO Congress there where I'm gonna be speaking, Chris Mellon is going to be speaking, um, and there's going to be three days of uh, various presentations. And I really look forward to, to that. So, and I will be giving notices. My plan was to give the notices as soon as we had everything locked in. So, thank you. We, well, Annabelle Solon will be glad to hear that. She's uh, sent a super chat this evening from Seville in Spain. So, oh, great. thank you for that. Yeah, you guys that are in Spain, uh, and a lot of you are bilingual, you speak English as well as Spanish, uh, come to the Barcelona UFO Congress, and uh, who knows, we might have one of those, you know, where if the weather is good and you get, find a place uh, where everybody after uh, all the presentations, I think the, my favorite times are when you stay up all night well, with a group of people talking on a terrace, having uh, some good wine and everybody sharing uh, some UFO ET story. I think that can be fantastic. And uh, conferences don't advertise that, but the truth is for those of us who have been to so many conferences for so long, that's, the, that's one of the best parts. Of course, the, the presentations are fantastic, but there is that human side that so many of us have not been able to experience in these two years. And I'm hoping that in Barcelona, if, every, if the weather, no COVID, no, no, nothing happening, no war, it's like we're getting to a point with what is going to happen next. So let's hold open. September will be beautiful in Barcelona and we can all, some of us anyway, uh, get together there. I've visited Barcelona many times and I should be there this time as well, Linda. So Great. Thank you for that. That, that would be fun. Okay. okay, Linda, I'm going to do the Super Chats first of all, and we've got a lot of them to get okay. through, so let's get cracking right. with these. Okay, here we go. Jessica Rodriguez, Linda Emeterio, transgressive scientist, Traz, Dr. Dolores Moises, Laura Dujubas, Moonbird. Hi, you guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Whisper of Love. Christina Ledesma, Jimenez, Caroline Boyce, Sergeant Cadet, Kathy Iwonoski. Uh, we've got Daniel Gomez, Stan Koswalski, Kathy Iwonoski, Rocks in Space, Annabelle Solan, uh, Amy Esney, Linda Dobson Hacker, Rene Martin, Robert Rust, Oscar <sighs> Mayo, Jeff Francis, and you. I'm sorry if I've missed anyone out, but it was busy, very busy in the chats. And a cheer to Ian for all of his good pronunciations. And thank you, everybody. It really does mean a lot uh, that you want to support this work. And it really helps give me energy to do it. So thank you, everyone, everywhere. And Ian, do you have any list of how many countries we might be interacting with uh, tonight? I don't have a list of the number, but I can tell you that we've got viewers tuning in tonight from all over the United States and Canada, Brazil, Chile, many parts of, uh, of uh, Latin America, South Africa, Sweden, Kuwait, Panama, Puerto Rico, Australia, New Zealand, and Spain and Brazil. 
We'll ask everybody uh, to, uh, who has serious, uh, uh, what I want to say is, like, if you have video hard evidence or photographic hard evidence or a detail, like you've taken, kept diaries if you've had interactions uh, with beings of some sort starting in childhood or wherever. Because to be able to get strong reports from various countries around the world, and if the details resonate from country to country to country, which I know they do, but it is really important to get a lens on the whole planet, what is happening where. And as we keep growing and more and more countries are tuning in, would you agree, Ian, this is a huge value, if the, if the most detailed, where there really is a lot of detail and, and perhaps diaries and photographs and videos, those kinds of cases, we could end up perhaps being able to present some that had a lot of evidentiary material. That's right. We've got a lot of people who are also calling in with their, uh, well, let's say they're in the chat at the moment discussing their own experiences. Uh, yeah. We've had Laurel um, uh, says the first encounter she had was in Española, New Mexico. Saw a huge black triangle that made no noise but had vibration as big as a football pitch and hovered over the mobile homes for 45 minutes with neighbours watching. She also has video, not of that event, but video of other events. And we've asked her to contact her files. And uh, Ian, did I understand that she is seeing the, a large craft that is detached, it's up in the air, but she was feeling vibration in the house and the land? Yeah, I believe so. It hovered over um, her mobile home for 45 minutes and felt the vibration. So we're looking forward to hearing from her. I've asked her to give us more information and she also says she's got videos too. Our, that's gr uh, great. Thank you, you guys, everywhere around the world. Uh, that's what we need is evidentiary material. So um, what, about, uh, what about us taking maybe five, seven questions now, and I will try to answer <laughs> as fast as I can. Hey, Linda, how about this then? Um, how would one know if they've had high strangeness happening in their life and they don't know what to do with it? That is an excellent question. I, my heart goes out to everybody because I can remember what came into my mind as you said that. I'll, I'll tell you exactly. One of the more extraordinary cases that I've covered and is in Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume uh, 2, it's the 106-page chapter that I have talked about where there are the illustrations by the abductees of tubes that have light at the top and the bottom and inside are recognizable humans being um, preserved, their, their lives uh, extended, uh, ETs that are very clearly different. And that the abductees referred to this technology as resurrection technology. The, uh, beings that included a praying mantis, uh, a taller gray, the little uh, android grays, um, 
their communication to the abductees had to do with the soul and that they're, whatever they are doing, whether they're tracking, studying, whatever it is, that they communicated that there, there was a strong reason for why certain souls had to be <clears throat> in certain uh, bo body containers for a specific length of time. And that if disease was taking us out or an accident, that part of their work would be to get that human, extract the soul, put the soul in another, whether it's cloned or biologically generated, a, the, a body of the human that has died, and then sort of like incubation, that the soul and the body would be together in this light preservation technology for whatever was the time that it needed to mature. In that context, one of the cases is a woman named Linda Porter. And she first uh, contacted me, I think it was 1990 or 1991. And I started working on Glimpse's uh, volume one at that period of time. And then I had five other cases. And uh, there was, uh, she was living at that time in California. And I had lots of work that kept taking me to California and I got to meet her. And I drove uh, to the city where she was living near Porterville. And we picked out a, a place that, where we could meet and talk without people around. And we talked probably four or five hours. And somewhere in the first hour, she was trying to explain to me her sensation of the first time that she became conscious that she was not in her home, she was not in her bedroom, that she was in something that seemed to be like real. and that there was a praying mantis who telepathed to her that what she was going to experience was a translation into the light. And then she's taken into a huge room where all these tubes and all these bodies are. And there's gray, tall, and small. And they demonstrate how and why they're doing. And she gets to see her own body and another person's body as a demonstration where the soul comes up out of the top of the spine and moves like this gold sort of like sort of like a a frequency this way uh, sort of even waves like a frequency but it was vertical it came up out of the back and then it moved vertically into a body that was in one of these containers of light. And the demonstration was done first with the man that I've told you about before. And they explained that he had had uh, some kind of problem and he was go uh, going to die and they had to do this, but that he would not be returned and he would spend the rest of his life 
with a soul in Australia where he would never cross any of his North American family. And after they explained that, they then said to her, you had rheumatic fever when you were a child. Your heart is damaged. You will die too early. We must do this. And she was sitting about three feet across from me in California in that meeting. And she got to that part and she said, I can't act for you. Imagine me suddenly just sobbing, just breaking, breaking from talking to suddenly sobbing as she, Linda, whose arms are these? I watched one of me die. I watched him, but they said I was going on in another body, but I'm here. I'm with you. I'm in California. Whose arms are these? And then she cried for, I don't know, maybe five minutes. And it's like the question Ian posed. We are all explorers in this. We are all, in a strange way, beginners in all of this. I have interviewed more than 3,000 people now in the human abduction syndrome. I know when I hear a certain word, it's going to go this way. I know when there is a certain description of a feeling. So I have a textural relationship to what happens to abductees that's quite complicated. But none of us that I know can say to a fellow human being, you can trust this. This is what will happen. This is why it's happening. And here's what the future will bring. We would all like those guarantees. But the truth is, we are still in a truly exploratory relationship. And when I say these words, we hear them so much with other intelligences. They are not human. They appear, some of them, to have a vested interest in us. Right there to the question of our viewer. I honestly, if, if I knew, I would say to you that I knew X percentage of people uh, were saved from a disease or uh, they've had some physical damage or, and that UFO and, and uh, implants and abductions will change, change everything. I can't say that. Or the opposite. Will going on an abduction with these beings cause a problem or be threatening? We're not sure. 
But I can say this, I have interviewed over 3,000 human beings. That's a fact. Those people, they may be confused sometimes and they may be frustrated, but, but generally those that I have interviewed, they are wonderful, wonderful people that have been touched by something they don't understand that I am trying to understand, that I'm trying to understand why the government uh, has had such a policy of denial. Is it just technological? Is it just political? Or is there something else that we all should know? And part of the value, I think, of us doing this every Wednesday night and moving into, for some, maybe too many details on the documents, but the vast majority of people are saying to me, I never knew about documents like this. How could the government not tell us since World War II? That's the kind of attitude that I think everybody should have. We are in some kind of a major revolution. I pray every day to the thought that dwells in the light. Please, please move us in the direction of love and peace away from hate and violence. Move us in the direction of seeing what the human soul is truly about in relationship to advanced beings that can move in space tunnels, that they can do the Alcubierre warp drive and beyond, that they can go 55 light years in five Earth days. How would it change everything that's happening on the planet now if every single human knew all of the truth of our genetic manipulation by extraterrestrial biological entities millions of years ago. We are the current version. And that throughout our last 5,000 years, it seems to me that there have been demonstrations by other forces that there is something about Homo sapiens sapiens that might even be unique in a universe that appears to be an experiment in biological consciousness. And that the experiment in biological consciousness of all things is being played out in a holographic universe. The size and the depth of the interaction with other intelligences. I find it exciting trying to understand, exhilarating thinking about being able to go from one end of the universe to another. But I also feel like I did that day when Linda Porter sobbed such deep empathy for my fellow human beings. I wish I had all the answers. I wish that they were all fantastic and great and good. But even if they are on a bell-shaped curve, meaning 
from bad to middle to great. I just so profoundly, so profoundly feel that something is worth all of this effort that is worth all of the agony that humans have been evolving, trying to get to a point where our souls have more importance over our consciousness than money and power. And that may be what is being watched. So, God bless you who asked the question. I don't know if my words tonight will help, but every time that you are feeling like, I don't know what to do, I don't know why this is happening, I don't know what the, the stra high strangeness is, stop and say to yourself, if what is happening to you and to millions more on planet Earth would lead to you beginning to actually know something else in the universe that wants us to be conscious, but wants us to be conscious in a better, stronger, more positive way influenced by souls then maybe that will ultimately be the reason why humans survive this rough and tumble decade of 2020 to 2030. I think a tremendous number of things are going to happen. But if you say, souls recycle. Iba told the Air Force captain, retrieve from one of the crashes in New Mexico. Reincarnation, the recycling of souls, is the machinery of this universe. And there's a lot to absorb and feel in a statement like that. And I finally always say to myself, just hang on, never give up, keep going. Keep going in this form for as long as you can. And then try to recognize a transition into another dimension. That's what I would like to be able to do. Okay, Ian, I, I, I know I went a long time, but that was a very profound question. Okay, I, prom no, I promise that, I'll take three more. Thank you, Linda. I'll, um, I'll take just re remind everyone to like and subscribe, please. Oh. Yeah, if you uh, like what I'm doing at Earth Files YouTube, um, click on that sub subscribe button at the lower right and the click on the like buttons. All of that helps us in YouTube. And uh, let me try, with your help, Ian, uh, a fast uh, three questions that I promise I will stop in a minute. Go ahead. Sure, just a, a couple of comments. First of all, uh, Dr. Cochran says, my son says he sees the greys I used to as a kid, and that's just uh, proof that it is generational. Um, yeah. Moving on as well, we've got the major who says that 
He used to handle archival documents in the 1980s. The documents so far look like the real thing and the language and tone fits the times too. Can he get me a copy that I can read? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I've asked if they were ET related, please contact us. Okay, here's some questions then. Um, Christina Ledesma Jimenez says, how do we tell the aliens apart from humans if they are walking among us by now? Is it blood DNA or is there something visibly different that we can see? I've experienced this half a dozen times in my life so far. Um, it is a sense, uh, I have felt it like uh, three feet, it was not human. Looked human, sort of, but not human. And honest to God, this is a true story. It was in a, a shop that had jewelry and clothes, and it was a, kind of a whole bunch of things, and it had carousels. And the carousels had sunglasses, and I needed a new pair of sunglasses, so I was standing at this carousel of looking at these and at first, I didn't even see, I sensed. I, I remember I, I was reaching for something and I just, I knew, I knew it was not human. I didn't feel fear at all. I felt tremendous curiosity. And I went like this and I went and picked up a glass, sunglass, so that my body was moving around the carousel keeping this carousel between me and what I sensed was over here. And when I did that, this being was reading my thoughts. That's the only way I can interpret it. I'm moving without, I've not made any noise. There had been no eye contact. And as I moved, the, I could feel. I still couldn't see the person moves in the opposite direction staying exactly opposite. And then I did it as an experiment. What is going on? So I started moving and I'm not kidding. So now I'm aware that there is a consciousness on the other side of this sort of largish carousel. What am I going to do? I am thinking, I'm not thinking that they're picking me up telepathically until I, I have in my mind okay, I'm going to walk very fast. And I, as, as soon as I'm, I'm going to walk really fast and I'm going to make a path, this person, sort of, sort of male, female-ish, I'm headed this way thinking I'm going to see this person, simultaneously makes this dash I uh, went as fast as I could through a store. I'm, I thought I would only be six feet behind whatever this was. I got to the door exit and, and she couldn't, or he or it, couldn't have been more than six feet. There was nobody leading up to the door. There was nobody on the other side. The, the store was on a hill. so. So anybody coming down would have to be going downstairs, and there was nothing. And I thought, well, that was really interesting. I wonder if what I've just experienced is what some people have said, that they, certain beings can manifest or look sort of like a human, but they can also flip off like a light. They can just disappear. I don't know, but I know that day 
that that was not a human and that they were picking up for some reason and I was picking up on them. I've always uh, had that as a kind of benchmark. Okay, Ian, another one. Okay, thank you very much, Linda. Okay, Linda, here's a very quick one. I don't know if you can answer this in a few minutes. Do you have any more information on the December 1982 NASA station that shut down Dr. Sahawas show on what's going on under the Sphinx's paw? And that comes from Jessica Rodriguez. I've only heard about it. I have never seen anything evidentiary, but I know how it feels to be in a digital world trying to deal with these complex, difficult subjects that governments don't want anybody talking about. And I worry all the time, too, about interferences and what could happen. So I think the bottom line is, for those of us who are actually trying to deal with true reality of our relationship with other beings, who knows what can happen. But I hope, if anybody from these agencies are listening tonight, I hope that they look and listen to us and they say, this is positive. This is good. We need a lot of this. Let them have their, their broadcasts, their discussions, and don't try to interfere because this is good. This is what humans need to be doing all the time. And hopefully the government will join in finally saying, we're sorry we haven't told you the truth for 80 years, but we were worried about, but now we think we know we have friends and we have advanced technology. And now we are going to tell you, official, we're not alone in this universe. This universe is teeming with consciousness. There are all kinds of planetary consciousness. And from now on, we'll try to tell you more truth. That, that is the press conference that I would like to be able to share with you guys. So now, on that note tonight, uh, I, I will definitely, next week, I'm going to uh, accommodate uh, more questions. And I, uh, some people say, I like the questions. Other people say, I like your reports. So I'm going to keep mixing and matching and we'll never know which week is gonna be what. But I'm not forgetting the questions in the comments. I I love your questions and comments, and we'll do a longer show on that and then more of this. And for anybody out there, your government, your intel, if you have legitimate, real documents, not trying to uh, pull somebody's leg, but you really have something, try to get it to me, and I can at least keep reporting uh, content, uh, whether or not uh, it is... Um, all evidentiary, which is what I, my goal would be. But, and you all let me know if you, if you feel that you have personally gained value from going into this much detail in these three documents, please let me know. Because it seems to me, this is what our world, our whole world, all 8 billion people. This is what they need to absorb for us to move forward on a planet and get out 
of hatred and war. I love you guys so much. Go for agape love with everyone. I'll see you next week. listening to this Earth Files podcast from the edges of science, environment, and real X-Files. Go to www.earthfiles.com to see more than a thousand Earth Files reports with photographs, drawings, and documents. And visit Earth Files every day, every week, for new reports and new podcasts. That's www.earthfiles.com.